Welcome to the Talking Writing Podcast. I'm John Vogel, TW's Art Director. In December 2022, I interviewed poet, writer, and editor Kelly Russell Agadon, who lives in the state of Washington. The conversation was conducted over Zoom, her in her writing shed, and me in my basement studio next to the furnace. Kelly is the author of four poetry collections, the most recent being Dialogues with Rising Tides, published by Copper Canyon Press in 2021. She is also a co-founder of Two Sylvia's Press, an independent literary press dedicated to poetry and nonfiction. This year in Talking Writing, we're exploring the role of art in people's relationships. How do artists' family members feel about and affect their creative work? Kelly's poem, Slang for Long-Term Relationship, was recently published in Talking Writing and provided a perfect segue into talking about our theme. Kelly was raised in the Seattle area and now lives in a seaside Washington town with her husband, a Seattle firefighter and fan of sci-fi books. Their non-binary child, they then, is now in grad school and as a father myself, I was particularly curious about the correlations between creative time and childhood development. Let's start off with Kelly reading her poem, accompanied by my own music. This is Kelly Russell Agadon reading my poem, Slang for Long-Term Relationship. Because we were watching another sitcom, I said, Masi Masi, which is slang for what the fox, life is boring. This is when you said, I'll hold your petticoat, slang for I'm here for you, babe. If we could, we'd predict the world would end with a confetti bomb and someone parking their car in the accessible space without a visible sign. It's all sparkle and annoyance. It's too much white space and not enough hot sauce on the popcorn. After a long weekend, you say, your tongue is cramping my snow globe, slang for maybe we're spending too much time together. Some days I toss my life ring to a seal because I like to watch a mammal who can balance things on its nose. You say, what does a poet need to be rescued from? I'm not sure, but sometimes I use stanzas to keep me afloat for a day or a daybreak, a year or a yearbook. Later, when we get in a fight over Jeff Bezos' tax return, the percentage of the coffee stain on the counter, not our tax bracket, nor the breakfast blend we bought on sale. I ask what you could live without, a marsh or marshmallow or me. Life is boring and then we diet. Your hollyhocks are wilted and on fire, slang for how often do you rebel against all you love? 
first off, um, if you could just tell me a bit about like what is your personal setup like uh, with with writing and your family? Like, um, how does your how does your family structure work at this point? Um, well, right now, um, my kid is in grad school, so it's just me and my partner at home. Um, and I need, I need people out of the house to write. I can't write around energy and, or I, so I need to be in this writing shed or I need nobody around. And that's how this writing shed came was during the pandemic. Everyone came home and I went, well, this is too much. And now I'm not writing again. We were just watching a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race. Nice. So I need quiet, but I don't have a schedule. I used to have a schedule. During the pandemic, we wrote every Thursday. A group of us, Martha Solano and Rhonda Broach, wrote on on Zoom. But now I'm just writing when I write. I've been sort of um, in that position for a long time, just sort of like stealing away time when I can to work on creative stuff. Um, so yeah, how is it going for you? It's it's going well. I do these things called the grind where you have to write a poem a day in a month. And I find just the act of doing that, you write a lot of bad poems. But every once in a while, there'll be a glimmer in there. And it's very different, you know, um, like having a young human in your household. Like I used to write from seven at night until like one in the morning, almost every night where I felt like when I had less time, I was grabbing at it. And now that I have more time, even though I'm working full time as an editor at Two Sylvia's Press, um, what's interesting is anything that something you can do anytime tends to get done at no time. So I like to have a little pressure on my time. Otherwise, I'll, I'll feel like, oh, I can I'll just write next week or um, and the grind does that. It, it gives me the structure to at least show up every day and try to write. Mm hmm. When your child was, uh, when they were growing up, uh, like, how was your work structure? Were you, were you the stay-at-home parent, or uh, was your partner the stay-at-home parent, or uh, were you both working? Luckily, we were both working, but luckily, I mean, our our kid grew up thinking that our lifestyle was normal because um, my partner was a Seattle firefighter, and I was an editor who could kind of control their own time, so we were always home. I mean, you know, there was a shift and it was 24 hours, but it's only eight days a month as a firefighter. And so um, it was harder when they were younger because of you didn't, they were just there, you know, until preschool started and that, and then you would get those little breaks. Um, and then it eventually changed where I'm trying to think, I think I would just, you know, still write in the evening, but I also notice that you write in the evenings more when you're younger. And as you get older, for me, I started writing in the mornings. So I became like a William Stafford, the get up before your family comes up to write. Yeah, yeah. I'm still in the, um, like, nighttime just because that's the that's the only time <laughs> I have, like, that's completely, right. like, I know is going to be available. I can count on it, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was me. That was exactly me. You'd do the 7 p.m. bedtime, and hopefully story time didn't, like, lead another 45 minutes extra so you could just get that time to get your writing in. Um, because you also, you know, as a parent, it's just so much, kids are so much of your life that solitude is something very different. And so now with somebody with, you know, a kid out of the house, you know, now I'm dealing with, like, managing my time with my partner and, you know, 
where we are just trying to get space, but there's still, I, I just need solitude. I, I know, or I need to write in a group where everyone's writing like with friends. It, it can't be though. I can't sit by somebody that I love and write a poem. I don't know why. With music, it's a little bit different. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable like having somebody listening to me while I'm like working out ideas that are unformed, you know? Right, right. Well, and also, if you're a sensitive person, like I feel the energy or if somebody's getting up or, you know, then all of a sudden there's a cat on your lap. It's so it's nice to have a just a place where you can go where you can just focus on your own writing, whether you know, that's a closet, you know, Ocean Beyond wrote, I think, his first collection, like in a closet. Um, And I, I just, you know, know that there's some of us that just need to get our little spaces so that we can just um, go to work and also not be interrupted. You know, I, I, who was it? Was it Lucille Clifton or there was a poet and they had on their door, it said, don't come in unless you're bleeding or on fire. Like don't interrupt. Like those were the two exceptions when you got to come and, you know, um, say mom, you know, but it wasn't come in, I need a snack or that, but it was even just to get an hour of time can be valuable. How has your uh, your availability to make art changed over the course of your child's life? I'm I'm particularly interested in this because I'm four years deep into trying yeah. to figure out this, and it's already changed a lot for me. Um, but yeah, how how has that gone? And also going into like school and high school, and now your kids in grad school. Yeah, um, it's it's amazing how. Um, easier it gets, you know, every, every time they get older, every time they can do a little bit more for themselves. And what I think is kind of amazing is that when it's, when you're in it, sometimes you're just like, oh my gosh, this is too much. This is just too much. And then like, I was just recently telling someone if I could go back and live like my life from when my kid was born to about six over and just like relive it and it, and for getting that privilege of reliving those years, I could only live like two more years in my life right now. I would totally do that because what I realized is um, I think I was so worried about whether I was doing it right that there was a part of me that missed out on the fun and was just so everything felt bigger than it was. And then when you get older, you like look back and you're like, oh, my gosh, those years were actually easy. Everyone was just, you know, the problems that seem bigger. And so I think that kind of is a hard thing when you're you're parenting, especially if your kid's going through some struggles or that trying to find your time and be able to, you know, take time because you worry so much. I worry so much about, you know, my kid. Um, but what I did find was every year it got better. It got better for me as a poet as far as time, but then you lose other things. Like, you know, I had a dream the other night that, I mean, I swear it was a time travel dream is that I saw my kid and, and I could pick them up and I held them in my arms. And I I remember thinking that's something that just ends. You just, all of a sudden one day you can't pick up your kid anymore or you don't pick them up but it's you don't know what date that I was trying to figure out I'm like when was the last time I picked them up but I don't know the date so I'm really interested in um, just how we change and how our relationships with our kids change Um, but I think if you can stay dedicated and just keep getting that time you'll always have your poetry you know 
and hopefully a great relationship with your son or kid as well. The anxiety that you felt uh, when your kid was growing up, how much would you attribute that to sort of your view of external expectations, like like the the judgment of other par- of other people judging how you parent your kid? <laughs> Yeah, well, what's interesting to me is I think because I grew up very tomboyish and I never really wanted kids that, and I never really associated with women's gender roles, I never ever had any sort of um, care of how other people judge me as a mom because I knew I was doing everything differently. I did. I had a mom try to shame me because I brought cupcakes that I bought from a store and she said, you didn't make them. And I'm like, of course I didn't. Why would I make the cupcakes? It was easier to buy them. And, um, I, I, but that's not where I get my validation. You know, had, had it been something else that I'm like, um, like if my mom said to me, like, Um, I I don't feel like I'm seeing you enough. Like that's much more upsetting than like another person just because I never associated with the roles of a mom. And I think it was because I wasn't sure up until I, you know, got pregnant. I, and I wanted, when I decided I wanted a kid, I really didn't know if I did. So that's always been easier for me. Also the mom that made me feel bad about those cupcakes actually brought, she was a sewer too. She sewed like all of her kids, you know, Halloween. She brought cupcakes and one had a, a pin in it from her sewing. And after the, thankfully nobody got hurt. None of the kids did, but the rule was you could only buy store-bought cupcakes after she did that. So I felt validated with that. <laughs> Now back to poet Kelly Russell Agadon on how she makes time for her writing. Sometimes I have to put it on the calendar and sometimes I have to go away like for a week writing residency. And, and sometimes before then, like a writing residency, I won't write. I won't allow myself to do any writing, hoping that when I get there, like it's built to that. Oh, I just can't wait to write a poem. Um, and then there's times where if I feel like I just don't know what I really want to write. Uh, I will set times just to revise. And I have a very strange revising. The way I revise is I don't pull up one poem. I go into my new work file and I, I, I open a poem, I open a poem, I open a poem until I have maybe like 15 poems on my computer. So now I've got 15 open word documents. And then I start reading and I'm a picky reader. And if I'm reading and I'm like, boring, close, boring, close. And then I read and then I'll be like, oh, well, this one has some potential. And then what I do is I find I can get into revising that. But I can't, I know there are poets that can only work on one poem. And until that poem is done, they can't move on. I'm the opposite where I have, I don't know, I probably have hundreds of drafts in my new work file that, haven't been revised that need to be revised or they need to be abandoned. I'm going to like look at them and say, Oh, this one's way too much work. You know, it's like if you were to buy a shack, sometimes I open up my poems and go, Oh, that's a shack. Like there's no way I can do a a home remodel on this. But then you open up one and you're like, Oh, you know, that's, that's more of a beach house. And I, I can just do a little paint job on this and, you know, put some nice handles on the cupboards and this will, this will be all right. And so that's kind of how I view my work, which 
I have no and I have no attachment to what I'm writing. It it will be a poem or it won't be a poem. Or it'll be sent out or not sent out. It'll be in a book or not be in a book. I don't actually care, you know. And I've gotten less caring about publishing as I've gotten older. That that kind of <laughs> uh, that that kind of brought up a question uh, for me of like mm-hmm. how how do you feel like that form of process uh, affects your output? Well, I don't know. There's a, a famous story about, have you heard the story about the potters having to do a perfect pot? And so there were two group of potters, um, like clay potters. And so one group was told, you need to make the very best pot, but you only get to do one. But, but work on it on this time period and make it perfect. And that was their job. And then the other potters were supposed to just make as many pots as you can. Just go. make And and then they said to the, then at the very end, we're going to figure out who has the best pot. And so there was a group that had one and then the group that had a whole bunch. And the best pot was in the group that did, you know, it was almost like quantity over quality. Because you're doing it so much as opposed to focusing on... Focusing on one, I always think about that pot that the one, they had their one pot and it was supposed to be perfect. And then I'm like, oh, it's the over revised poem. Like you worked on it too much. So it never, ever got to be perfect. So for me, having a lot of things works better because I feel like so much of poetry is throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks, you know? So that's kind of how I view it. Like every time I write a poem, I'm just, you know, there goes a piece of spaghetti to the wall. Well, that one didn't stick, but maybe the next one will. Is your partner also, do they have creative endeavors or uh, none? No. Okay. None. Absolutely none. Absolutely none. No. <laughs> <laughs> that, so we're very, very different people. So um, he's very much uh, like, he does the cooking. He's he's the, you know, rides like a, a trike and loves sports and reading. And he's now in college back for wine classes. So that's creative. And he's, he's an artist, but nothing like what I do. I mean, I married almost the opposite of me. I've always wondered what it would be like to be like partnered with another poet and just like, cause you know, I always think about Jane Kenyon and um, what was her husband's name? Um, oh God, it's out of my head, but I always imagine them like on the farm and um, there's Brenda Hillman and Bob Haas and, just like, oh, there's them sharing their work. So there's, I feel there's like a romanticism to that, but it also might be frustrating. Like, oh, you know, I know what, especially if somebody has a big opinion, um, because I don't like people to comment on my work when I'm working on it. I, that's why I don't, I don't workshop my work because I don't like anyone else's opinion. (laughs) I don't know why. It's just, I, I feel like, well, I know the work better and I've gotten to a place where it's mine and Uh, If I'm going to make a mistake, I'm going to do it on my own. I don't want to. um, I'm happy to hear suggestions, but I really don't want to. (laughs) Which, And I think if I had a partner that was, you know, kind of wanting to give me suggestions, I think I would resist that crazily. I mean, I love having somebody who gives me a life. I've had many people say, well, why haven't you written about, you know, about more about like the firefighting aspects? And I said, well, because that's not my life. That's. I write about, you know, relationships, you know, like the the poem that, you know, was accepted slang for long-term relationships. I can write about aspects of it, but I don't, I, I tend to write more from an emotional base um, and, and pulling out of myself what I'm working through 
And so, yeah, I kind of got off track on the question, but no, it works just fine. It works great. Though I did say when I dedicated a book to him, he didn't read it. And I said, well, that's the last book I'm dedicating to you. Because <laughs> I asked him, I said, what do you think of my book? And he goes, oh, I like the first poem. And I'm like, that's as far as you got, isn't it? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> so... In general, how does how would you describe the way he feels about your art? Like, um, not only about your art, as in like the uh, does he like or dislike what you're doing, but also like how would you describe how he feels about its role in your life and and what it provides for you? Um, absolutely supportive. Um, while he did not read my book, it made it to the Seattle Fire Department in his backpack every single shift. So, you know, he was really proud and honored about it. But, you know, it would be the way I liken it to is, you know, if he reads um, sci-fi and, you know, that's never been my thing. And so are there certain genres that are not your thing? And if somebody writes something in that genre, you, you know, I might only read the first 10 pages if he wrote, you know, a book and dedicated it to me. That was science fiction. I might said, oh, well, now we're at Planet Mother. I think I'm going to check out here. So, um, but no, he's very, very supportive. Um, I think this is kind of a parent thing and you might not get this. And if, if your wife was a, um, a poet or an artist, she might get it more. And I'm hoping times are changing, but I did get, I, I did have people say when I would go on writing residency, when my kid was younger, um, does your husband mind babysitting? which drove me crazy because it's actually not babysitting. It's called co-parenting, you know. <laughs> he owns half of what we created, and we were raising that human together. But that was something that I got a lot, even when I was in grad school, because I went to grad school when my kid was, you know, four, and it was a low-res program, so I'd be on campus not very much, like 10 days a year. And I, a, a woman came up to me and said, an, an older woman said, I... I just don't understand how you can you can leave your child like that. And I'm like I'm I'm role modeling higher education and take care of yourself and and what I noticed was she never said that to any of the other dads. That was definitely a mom, you know, you should be home doing the mom thing. And I, I just wanted to say to her, you know what, I, I don't even know how to cook. I don't know how to cook. I don't do that part, but it was a very gendered specific role which was um, your poetry is second, your life as a mom is first, as opposed to finding a balance where, and going back to grad school, you know, you want to make sure you can, if something were to ever happen to your partner, you know, n no matter whoever it is, each person needs to be able to take care of themselves and be able to, you know, continue making house payments and pay for electricity. So yeah, it was an interesting comment. To me as a musician, it's hard enough to, to, work money into that situation, but I feel like it's even harder for writers and even harder for poets, you yeah. know? Um, so, yeah. so yeah, how do you, um, how do you feel about the money aspect of the art, but also the, um, um, like, where do you find your motivation to publish? Well, the money aspect, I work as an editor to Sylvia's Press, and I think, you know, most poets have some sort of other job. And, and in a certain way, that's nice because our poetry 
doesn't have to be our income because it's so little. I mean, even getting book royalties and that, and I'm with Copper Canyon Press now, you know, it's not enough to live off of. So I kind of like that I don't have to worry about, oh, I have to do this to, I think that might take away the joy in it if I had to like, oh, I have to write this poem. Or I always think about that with novelists who have to, who actually are making money off of their books. Poetry books don't make that much. And what was the second part of that question? You said that. How do you get to the point of uh, motivating yourself to actually put something into print, um, you know, or, oh, or start oh, submitting? Oh. <laughs> peer pressure, peer pressure. Um, I have friends that do, we do what's called a submission grind. And so we have to send out poems because I just really, I, I just find that it, a tedious task. I hate writing down. I hate keeping a spreadsheet, knowing where my poems are, keeping a little journal, um, I'm always, I've sent poems to, and not realized I've sent, you know, and people do simultaneous submissions, but when I do it, I don't know I'm doing it. And then all of a sudden I'll be like, oh no, I have two poems accepted at the same poem at one, two different places. Um, so I just have friends that are really good at submitting. And so I will get together on email and check in and say, okay, here's where we submit, you know, and we'll get ideas from each other, but I'm terrible at it. I just don't find it fun. I mean, I like, it's fun to be published, but the submitting part is not fun. One thing that I learned more in my twenties and thirties, I feel like, um, and I'm 41 now. Um, but I feel like I, I learned that most people do not make a living off of this. And the the level that you have to get mm -hmm. to of recognition where somebody can say like, oh, I've heard of that person, you know, the and the level yeah. that you have to get to to actually get to the point where you're making a living off of art is like way higher than I think most people think it is. Oh, oh, absolutely. If you walked up to people and said, you know, what do you think about Ada Limon? Like, they may not know who she is. Oh, she's our poet laureate. Oh, we have a poet laureate? You know, it's it, it really is that um, some poets have been able, I think, to cross the line. Maybe, like, Mary Oliver, I think, is one that has a lot of people knew. Um, Maggie Smith, because, one, she's a lovely human, but also she's, you know, writing a memoir now, and, and her... She had her book, um, Keep Moving, that went off of the tweet. So people might know her, but that's because she's reached into other fields in the poetry world. She just might be, would have been known more, but still not to Maggie Smith. They would think of the woman that was on that British show, you know. Poetry books don't make a, they don't sell a lot. It's considered, you know, your book is considered a, a good seller if it's over a thousand you know, that's, that's compared to, I mean, if you think about novels, that's like nothing. So poets like to write poetry and hopefully we can support each other by buying each other's books because we're, there are poets that are reaching into a larger audience, but a lot of our readers are poets themselves. Thank you for listening to the Talking Writing Podcast. We're an independent literary site and nonprofit organization based in the Boston area, but with contributors from around the world. Since our founding in 2010, we've relied on donations to keep publishing and podcasting. To donate to TW, you can use the donate button on the rss.com page of this podcast or visit talkingwriting.com slash donate. And of course, feel free to drop us a line at editor at talkingwriting.com.